Well, Father, we come before you just grateful for this chance to come together and sit under your word. We thank you for the example of Jesus. He is our perfect uh, mentor. He is our perfect example. He is the true king, and he is the tested king. And as we talk about just the temptation to compromise, I pray that um, all of us will be appropriately convicted, that we'll see how easy it is to do, and that we will respond in faith knowing that no compromise is worth it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, my wife's favorite movie, and let's face it, I've really come to appreciate this movie as well, is Casablanca. You guys ever watched Casablanca? Just one of the great movies of all time. Uh, it's set in Casablanca, which is in Morocco, in 1941. The context is the mass exodus of people fleeing from the Nazis during World War II. And so what these refugees would do is they would travel to Casablanca, and from Casablanca they would get a, a visa to go to Portugal, and then from Portugal they could go to the United States and find safety and refuge. And Humphrey Bogart plays Rick Blaine, who owns a swanky nightclub in Casablanca. And there's all, these, all this intrigue as many of these refugees are trying to get out of the country. Now to get this coveted visa, you have to get in the good graces of the captain of the police. Enter Mr. and Mrs. Brendel, who are refugees from Bulgaria. They've been married eight weeks, and Mrs. Brendel is a beautiful woman. And she received an indecent proposal from Captain Renault, the captain of the police, where he would give her and her husband a visa in exchange for a morally compromising act. So Mrs. Brendel goes to Rick Blaine, played by Humphrey o Bogart, and, and wants to ask, what kind of man is Captain Renault? Will he actually keep his word if she follows through on this indecent proposal? And this is the dialogue. Oh, Monsieur, you are a man. If you loved, if someone you loved very much, if someone loved you very much, so that your happiness was the only thing that she wanted in the whole world, but she did a bad thing to make certain of it, could you forgive her? Rick stares off into space and says, nobody ever loved me that much. Mrs. Brendel. And he never knew. And the girl kept this bad thing locked in her heart. That would be all right, wouldn't it? Do you see the temptation? If I do this out of love, if I do this morally compromising act to accomplish a great good for my husband, wouldn't that be okay? See, the thing about compromise is somebody who compromises, they're always able to justify their compromise. If I do this bad thing, it would accomplish this greater good. Your daughter has wanted to go to a private Christian school. It's very expensive, and you're filling out your FAFSA application. And you think, you know what, if I just change this number here, if I just say this much is in my bank account, and this is my salary, and I would just make all these little adjustments, then my baby girl could go to this Christian college. Do you see it? 
I know as a, as a pastor, I'm often asked to do funerals for um, unbelievers. And that's an awkward thing to do as a pastor. Because naturally the question comes up, where are they? And it would be tempting to preach them into heaven, right? Because you want to do, you want to do that. You think, well, if I'm just kind and compassionate, then maybe they'll start coming to our church. And then I can give them the, the fullness of the gospel. I just maybe not emphasize some core Christian doctrines at this point, right? If I do this bad thing to accomplish a good thing, won't it be worth it in the end? This is the temptation that Jesus is facing in his second temptation in Luke chapter 4. Now, if you look at it, it's slightly different from the order we see in Matthew. It's likely that Luke structures these temptations so it ends up in Jerusalem because that is the center of much of the drama in Jesus' ministry. Now, the devil has just tempted Jesus after Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights tempted him with breaking the fast to use his divine power to satisfy himself. And now Satan offers Jesus a, a shortcut. Luke 4, 5 through 8. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you. I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, the point of all of this is to certify that Jesus is the beloved Son of God. Remember, he was just baptized. The Holy Spirit descended upon him. The voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son. And now he is proving it, that he is the faithful Son of God, one without sin, one without blemish, who will rightly take the throne and rule the nations on behalf of God. And what's being offered here is a shortcut. This could all be yours if you worship me. Now, if we are honest, there's many times in your life, there are many times in your lives, where there is a temptation to compromise. I could save a lot of money if I do this. We can get the kids' admission if we say our kids are this old. Fudging financial documents, telling a little white lie, all these slight, subtle ways so that we can achieve some perceived greater good. It's a temptation to compromise. But the problem with the temptation to compromise is you are compromised, right? If Jesus were to compromise, he would be compromised. And that has tremendous implications for all of us. And so granted, the whole point of all of this is to show that Jesus is the uncompromised son of God, but he's also a template, right? We are to follow in his steps. And as he fights the temptation to compromise, he gives us some, some real choice instruction. Number one is you do not discount the temptation to compromise. It's more real than you know. Two, do not compromise with compromise, right? 
Because if you compromise, you are compromised. So let's look at this first point. Do not discount the temptation to compromise. Starting verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I mean, this was something. Matthew says it took him to a high mountain. Uh, some speculate that this might be some sort of vision like what John had at Patmos. But, in, but you, you see the moment here, right? Jesus is standing and looking at the entirety of this world. He, he sees the pyramids of Egypt, the hanging gardens of Babylon, uh, the places of great learning in Athens, the library at Alexandria, the Roman Colosseum and the seat of power, right? He, he is able to see it all. And he sees Jerusalem with the temple uh, the, where the throne of, and, and this, the, the, the city and the home uh, of David where he would rule the nations. He sees it all. And Satan tells him this. To you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me. And I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it'll all be yours. Now, some of you wise and discerning Christians are thinking to yourself, isn't the devil a liar? To which the answer is yes. So is this a genuine offer? Could he really give this to Jesus? I want to give you some passages just to think about. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In this case, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan's able to blind people's minds in this world. Ephesians 2.2, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, a spirit that is now at work in disobedience. 1 John 5.19, we know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Twice in the Gospel of John, Satan is referred to as a ruler of this world. Right? In, in some sense, Satan rules this world. Now, we know that God is the ultimate ruler. We know that nothing can happen apart from God's allowance of it. But he is able to rule this world. Ephesians 2, 2 through 3, in which you once walked following the course of the power, course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Satan is able to enslave the totality of the human population. The unregenerate human population is under the power of Satan, and he rules them like a third world tyrant. Right? He's able to bribe them with, with pleasures and power and, and drunkenness and sex. You name it, he will give it to you if only you would not worship the Lord God. So he bribes them, and then he threatens them. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things through the death he might, this is the key point, destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You got that? 
Satan's able to enslave everyone through the fear of death. Eat, drink, and be merry. Party, you only live once. That's a lie from Satan. Every false religious system that people turn to in hopes that they might escape the consequences of death is fueled by Satan. The desire to live forever and reverse the aging process uh, to forget about death, that is also from Satan, right? Satan, in some way, God allows him to be the ruler of this world. And we know that in the future, he's going to reclaim the world from Satan, but there's going to be a procedure to do so. But for the moment, Satan, after tempting Jesus for 40 days and 40 nights, says, Jesus, I want to make you an offer. And he's like a timeshare presentation, right? He's going to tell them what they get first. We're not going to worry about the price later. I'm going to just tell you what you get. You get the whole world. All of this can be yours. Now, if you're Jesus, it would be tempting for a number of reasons. Number one, Jesus is rightly entitled to the world. He is the Son of God. The whole world belongs to him. And notice that Satan doesn't even question whether or not he's the Son of God. He just offers him the world. He can think about, let's say, the prophecy that was said over him in Luke 1, 32-33. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his king, of his kingdom there'll be no end, right? He will have these kingdoms. Revelation eleven fifteen. the seventh angel blew the trumpet, and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Jesus could say, this all belongs to me. He's just giving me what already belongs to me. I can go ahead and do that. Secondly, Jesus could reason that he can do a better job than Satan of ruling this world. 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So instead of having this cruel despot ruling this world, I'll rule instead. I could do a better job than Satan. Thirdly, and probably most attractive of all of these, is he would not have to die on the cross. Didn't Jesus say in the Garden of Gethsemane that there's any other way, now would be a good time to know. If we kind of avoid all the heartache, all the pain, all the suffering of the next three years, if I could just bypass it now, it would be great. You know, being a crucified Messiah is not good for publicity. Being crucified is a sign of shame. I'll be a stumbling block to the Jews. Maybe it's better to just have it now. So after hearing the timeshare presentation, Satan now discloses the cost. This could all be yours. If then, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. All he has to do is just worship the devil. Just once. Just once. If you do this bad thing, you'll make certain of this good thing. Just worship the devil one time. Now, one of the themes in all of this is how Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. Israel was on their way to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This was a place where they would be a kingdom of priests. All they had to do is receive these covenants 
get further instruction at the foot of Mount Sinai. And so they're waiting at the bottom of Mount Sinai so that they can do this good thing and make it to the promised land. Exodus 32, 1 through 6, this is what we read. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, right, Moses, how long are you going to be? I mean, when are we going to go to the promised land? The people gathered themselves to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what become of him. I mean, perhaps he went up to Mount Sinai and he died, right? We need to go and to take on these armies, we need some gods to protect us. So Aaron is in this sticky situation where he knows that God explicitly told them, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not worship any other gods. But I got this angry mob in front of me, he's getting impatient. What do we do? Well, Aaron said to them in verse 2, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and sons and your daughters. Remember how when they left Egypt, they got all the plunder? And bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold uh, that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold in the hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, and this is key, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. They're going to worship this calf and worship the Lord by worshiping this calf. Now, you might think, what's Aaron doing? I mean, this seems positively idiotic. But it was probably a salvage operation, right? We're going to meet halfway. They want to worship an idol. I know that you only worship the Lord. Well, let's make an idol and call it the Lord. It's like the guy who says, I'm going to bow down to Buddha, but I'm really bowing down to the Lord. Or the husband says, I'm kissing this other woman, but I'm only, only going to think about my wife as I do it. You think God's okay with that? You see, they thought that they can do a bad thing to accomplish a good thing. There's another example in 2 Kings. The southern kingdom was under threat. The northern kingdom, Israel, made an alliance with Syria, and they're going to take them out. And that's when Ahaz decides to try to buy off Syria, sends them all the gold and silver. And then he tells them in 2 Kings 16, 7, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who is attacking me. Now it gets worse. He made, he went there and he saw the Assyrian, I'm sorry, I kind of confused Syria and, and Assyria. He saw the Assyrian gods and the altar to the Assyrian gods and he made a replica. And there was an implicit agreement we will form an alliance, and to show our goodwill, we're going to worship your gods. And in worshiping your gods, you will come alongside of us and protect us from our enemies. See the problem? 
I'm going to do this bad thing to accomplish a good thing. Now, one thing with idolatry is this. A lot of times we think, I'm going to reject Yahweh to worship this God. But they never thought that way. There's always, I'm going to worship Yahweh, but I'm also going to worship these other gods too. We'll just go ahead and add them to it. A little bit of compromise will procure the goodwill of this other country, and we will be safe. Jesus, if you just bow down to me one time, one time, you can have all these kingdoms. And think about all the good you can do with all these kingdoms. Inflation has shrunk your savings account. You're wondering about Christmas this year. You kind of open up to your office manager how you just don't know what you're going to do. Then your office manager says, you know what, reimbursements are due for the entire year. Just round them up, and you can give your kids Christmas. You just kind of change the numbers, and the office manager is telling you that this is okay. This company has lots of money. You don't. You'll be okay. You're underpaid anyway. You do this one act, and you can give your kids Christmas. What do you think? Do you do it? Right? That is the pull. One little lie, one fudge, and you can have this. That's when you remember that you do not compromise with compromise. Now, Jesus answers Satan with very strong words. It is written, verse 8, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He's doing what Israel failed to do. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6.13. You do not compromise. You worship the Lord and Him only. End of story. You never compromise with sin. Now, compromise, when you think about it, it is defined as settlement of differences by arbitration or by consent reached by mutual concessions. Right? If somebody is not willing to compromise, we see them as unreasonable. You know, both of us need to make concessions. Nobody has the corner on the truth. And be suspicious of anyone who claims that, right? We both need to make little sacrifices. Now, when it comes to God, God is not our peer, right? He doesn't say, yeah, you can do that if I get this. God is our absolute authority. He makes it very clear that he is to have no rival. When we talk about a high view of God, it means God is up here, you're down here, we need to know our place. You don't compromise with God. God doesn't negotiate. He makes it very clear in Exodus 34, 14, for the Lord, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, this doesn't mean that he's jealous of your abilities and he wishes that he has your hair and your muscles and your car. He's jealous for you. He understands that all worship and affection belongs to him. He's not going to share it with anybody else. And to think that you can compromise and say, you need to give me a break here, Lord. I'm going to do this good thing for you, but you need to give me a pass here. He doesn't negotiate. And so when you compromise with sin, what happens is you become compromised. On a cold winter night, a, a hunter went out into the forest because he was cold and he was going to kill himself a bear. The bear is in his sights. He's anticipating that he's going to get a nice, warm bear jacket. 
When the bear asked him, this is the story, work with me here. <laughs> Why are you shooting me? Well, he says to the bear, because I'm cold. And the bear says, I know you're cold, but I'm hungry. <laughs> Maybe we can reach some sort of mutually satisfactory agreement. And they did. The hunter was enveloped by bear fur. And the bear had a wonderful meal. You see, when you compromise with sin, what do you think is going to happen? When you compromise with sin, you are compromised, even if it's done with noble intent. And often I have seen and I have experienced, uh, there's a temptation to do this in the name of evangelism. In the name of evangelism, I'm going to do this bad act. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. But I want to reach these people for Christ. And they party a lot. And so I'm going to be the non-partying partier. I'm going to be the designated driver. I'll spend time with them, go to their parties, but never drink. What do you think eventually happens? Or you spend time with unbelieving friends and they make it very clear that they don't want to hear anything about the gospel. Uh, they ridicule Christians in front of you and so you just kind of keep silent and you quote the apocryphal quote by St. Francis Assisi of speak the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Like I'm just going to act like Jesus and they're going to become Christians. But I'm never going to confront them. And you keep silent. Or, or you have intellectual friends or cultured friends. And, and again, they are deriding the historicity of the Bible. Only an idiot believes in a young earth. And so you think to yourself, well, Christians have other ways of understanding that. Or they are deriding the sexual ethic. Only bigots think that gay marriage is not honoring to the Lord. And so you think, well, maybe there's a way of under free understanding this to make it more acceptable to them. Have you been there? But this is the folly of compromise. What you're doing is you're bringing God down to the human level. You're not lifting them up. You're not saying he's the authority, you answer to him. You're trying to make a more palatable version of God. Like the God that you are representing right now, if you just kind of change a few things about him, He'll be more acceptable to other people. But here's the deal. There's nothing wrong with God. And if you think you need to change something about him, that means there is something wrong with you. Further, if you are misrepresenting God, You're not pointing people to God, but to an idolatrous representation. You know, in the news, we've been seeing all those pictures from the Webb telescope. You guys seen those? Unbelievable. Before the Webb telescope, we had the Hubble telescope. In April of 1990, it was launched on the Space Shuttle Discovery. Cost between 2.5 or $3 billion to make this telescope in today's dollars. And and when it was launched into space, so remember the first images that came back? They were fuzzy. 
because the mirror had a rise in it of two microns, which is like one fiftieth of a hair follicle. You know, just that one little tiny lift blurred the images. You see, we are called to be mirrors where we reflect God and Christ to a watching world. And when we warp it through a compromised witness, we distort the image that people see. Now, what's interesting is in in this passage, Jesus is tempted to compromise his witness, isn't he? Do one little thing to achieve the greater good. But what would have happened if Jesus would have compromised? What would have happened? He would have been compromised. He would have been corrupted. He would no longer be someone who could die for our sins. He'd have to die for his own. And Jesus makes it very clear to be uncompromised. You have to have absolute devotion and loyalty to the Lord. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And you can replace money with, you can't serve God and people, right? You can't serve God and pleasure. You can't serve God and power. There's all kinds of ways you can compromise, right? So, so here's just a few questions. Like, do you ever soften the gospel to make it more palpable? Do you just keep quiet about the gospel? Do you use salty language to blend in with unbelievers? Do you have any relationships in your life that are questionable where you know it's just not right? What about the shows you watch or the music you listen to? If we had a record of what you watch, what would people think? If someone were to look at your financial transactions, what would they discover? If 60 Minutes did a report on your life, would they be bored or would they have a story? Right, in all of that, there's kind of a, I don't know where you are, but if you have been compromised, the first step is to confess and repent. And then I think there's kind of three general steps you need to take. Number one is you need to develop clear convictions of right and wrong. Right? Clear convictions of right and wrong. I was reading a blog post by an author who was sharing that when he was 22 years old, he was working at a small company. And while there, one of the veteran salespeople began to brag about how they cheated the customers. And this 22-year-old kind of pushed back and just said, you can't do that. And that's when the owner got word of it and just sat down with him and, and told him, you know what? When I was your age, I saw things as black and white. But as I've gotten older, I began to see things in shades of gray. Right? One way to compromise is to make what should be an easy decision, like do not lie, and make it into a complex one. Do not steal. Well, technically, when you think about it this way, you muddy the waters by saying it's not a black and white issue. Because nobody wants to be black and white anymore, right? It's so binary. Secondly is to prize a clean conscience. Prize a clean conscience. Paul says in Acts 24, 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now in, I think, 13 days, on the 27th, Becky and I are going to celebrate 20 years of marriage. So it's more of a credit to her than to me, right? 
God's given her special grace. And we went on a, on a honeymoon to Hawaii. And while we were there, we were told that a must-do is to go to the Nepali coast in Kauai. So we signed up, and we were going to book it. And, and the lady said, you know, you don't have to do the rubber raft. You can do the catamaran. And showed us all these pictures. And I thought, yeah. I like the catamaran. We'll do that. What do we have to do? Well, if you go to this timeshare presentation, running theme in my sermon, you can get it for the same price as a rubber raft. Well, sign me up. I'm really good at telling people no. <laughs> but here's the deal. Do you make this amount of money? Not even close. Do you own a home? Not even close. We lived in California at the time. Well, that's okay. Just tell him you're a doctor. Okay, and I was going along with it. I was going along with it. She's calling, setting all this stuff up, and I just hear the eh, 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 pull up, pull up, pull up. And finally, I'm like, okay, we need to take a timeout. So I can't do that. And I'm embarrassed that it lasted that long, to be honest with you. But looking back, that was like the comma almost hit the earth, right? One of the near misses in our marriage because what kind of example would I have set for my, my new wife, right? What kind of witness would I have had with that woman? And what would that have done to just the state of my conscience? Whatever you gain from compromise is really not worth it. your conscience will go off. And to silence it, you'll have to harden it. And having a hardened conscience leads to the third point, which is basically long-term compromise, right? If you compromise in one area, right? You, you splash in the rain and you got a little bit of mud on your jeans, you might as well just roll in the mud puddle. It's already gonna have to be laundered, right? That's the way we think when you're compromised. You can't become any more compromised. You've already shattered perfection, so to speak. So that's why people get into deeper and deeper and deeper sins. You tell one lie, well, I told this lie, I might as well just tell another one, and then another one, and then another one. That's why, that's, that's why adultery happens, right? People who fall into adultery don't fall, fall, don't fall far. There's always little tiny compromises along the way. And so you can't compromise with compromise, otherwise you will be compromised. And compromise will never get you what you want, right? It'll never get you what you want. If anything, it will separate you from God and you'll be on the outside looking in. So we see Jesus standing on the mountain and he had to make a choice. Will he compromise to get this kingdom? Well, we know how the story goes, doesn't it? Because it doesn't end at chapter 4. It goes all the way to the end. In Philippians 2, 5 through 11, we see that he chose to get the kingdom honestly and the reward. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He did get all those kingdoms given to him, and he'll take full control when he comes back. Right? The devil may have him now, right? may have us now, but he will come back and eradicate all his enemies. And if he did compromise, then he would be compromised, and what would be your hope? See, ultimately... For this whole thing to work, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. There is punishment due to us because of our sin. And everybody who dies, that's basically paying for their own sin. But enter Jesus, who lived an uncompromised and perfect life, he was actually punished for sins he did not commit so that he can give us a reward we never earned. Because he was uncompromised, he is able to change and transform us. And then this is the gift that he's given us, not just a rescue from hell, but he's given us the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and the ability to say no to those compromising issues. And so when we look at the Bible, we can claim the promise of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, some of you might be compromised right now. There's a couple ways out. One is to repent, and the second is to repent, right? There's your choices. Repent or repent. It means you come forward, you confess it, you bring the darkness to light, you say, what do I do now? And God will use his word and godly people to help walk you through how to repent, how to make things right, so that you can have that clean conscience once again. And you can enjoy uncompromising fellowship with an uncompromising God. And that ultimately is the payoff. When you compromise, you're compromised. But Jesus was not compromised so that you can have an uncompromised relationship with the Lord. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you and we thank you for the faithfulness of Jesus, that he came by his kingdom honestly, not in defiance of you, but in obedience to you. And I pray that all of us will see that obedience is better than life, that all of us will be resolute against any form of compromise, that we want to have an uncompromised relationship with you and that you'll give us such joy that any of the pleasures of compromise seem pathetic in comparison. Pray for anyone here who might have their conscience stirred, who knows that they have done wrong, that they need to address it, that you'll give them the courage to come forward and to repent. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.